Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to begin in verse 8 this morning. First Corinthians 13. This church was a mess. Corinth was a nightmare. And we think of it as being just uh, absolute bedlam. When you look at the churches of the New Testament, everyone kind of looks at Corinth and like, what was going on there? When you look through the letter, I mean, they had divisions and factions. They questioned apostolic authority, sexual immorality. I mean, crazy sexual immorality. Dude uh, having relations with his stepmother. Best case scenario. Lawsuits between believers. Idolatry. Open, rampant idolatry. The desire to be as close to idolatry as possible without actual being actually being idolatrous. Confusion about spiritual gifts. Questions over uh, roles and positions within the church. I mean, it was a nightmare, right? I mean, we like to look at Corinth and just shake our heads and wonder what in the world was going on. And ask just how, how could a church ever get so far out of hand? Alright, let's think through that list again. Divisions and factions. Questioning authority. Sexual immorality. Lawsuits. Idolatry and proximity to idolatry. Confusion over gifts and role responsibilities. Let's be honest. The American church looks at Corinth and laughs at that minimal level of dysfunction. Amen? We don't, we don't want to think like that. We want to think Corinth is, is a nightmare. Well, we're in good shape. No, we look at Corinth. And that's child's play. Look what goes on in the American church today. How many churches do you know that we just described on a good day? I only point that out because when we come to this letter, we often want to see that as a distant, a distant idea. A foreign church from a long time ago. Hopefully that makes it a little bit more palatable for us to accept that there are legitimate questions within the church. That the people had they'd sent letters to Paul asking, hey, what do we do here? Paul had to address some nightmare issues, but there were some real legitimate questions. Questions about marriage. Questions about uh, marriage, divorce, remarriage. What's that look like? How do we care for widows? What's the best way to do that? Dietary questions. What should we eat? Can we eat all this stuff? Is it, is it okay? Is it not okay? Questions about the resurrection. There are legitimate questions here. And we want to dismiss Corinth as the crazy church. We really need to identify Corinth as the closest thing in the New Testament to the American church. See that maybe, maybe there's something here that's more for us than we want to admit. I say that because we're going to come to 1 Corinthians 13. And... Um, 
Maybe this is the portion of 1 Corinthians that we butcher the most, is this chapter. Beginning in verse 8, Paul says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. So, let's just put our cards on the table here. Um, Tact has never been my strongest quality. I could tell you a bunch of stories to support that claim, but I'm pretty confident I don't need to convince you. I'm not the person you want giving you bad news. Hey man, how's it going? I just wanted to let you know your entire family died in a bus crash. Hope that's okay. I'm not trying to be... I I see things very black and white. It's just the way my mind works. And so if I've got bad news to tell you, I'm just going to tell you. There's no need beating around the bush, right? So tact is not my strongest quality. Hardly, uh, it may be hard to believe, but I'm exponentially more tactful today than I was 20 years ago. You can hear Matt and Jess, Portia and Diane laughing hysterically because they know. And they'll tell you, no, this is, this is much better. I, I want to tell you that because um, uh, th- this is a hard sermon. Alright? Um, there's really one of two outcomes at the end of this sermon this morning. You're going to be upset with yourself or upset with me. Just know that I may, I may need a gentle hammer, but I don't have a gentle hammer in my toolbox. I'm going to try to push this nail in gently with the sledgehammer that I have. Sometimes the sledgehammer hits a little harder than you need to. But I say that because I I don't want you to hear the hardness of the sermon without hearing the hardness of the word. I say that because, here's the deal, I, I chose this text because of verse 12. I wanted to preach that verse What a wonderful verse that is. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
I chose that because after, after Sublet's sermon last week, I thought, you know, speaking of the glories of justification by faith alone, let's talk about how we're, we're known and we're going to know. What a great text. But as you know, context is king. And the context of verse 12 is a hard context in the midst of a hard letter. I'll try my best to be clear and gentle. But when you hear me as heavy-handed, I, I think you're going to hear me incorrectly. The reality is I had to preach this sermon to myself first. And let me tell you, I've had sore toes all week. It's, it's not pleasant. I think of it like this. Uh, when I look at the text and I think about how to look at the uh, points of the text, I think of it as, uh, as hard talk, straight talk with the Apostle Paul. He sits you down, has an honest conversation. You ever had to have an honest, hard conversation with your kids? There's, there's no beating around the bush. There's just, look, here's, here's what we've got to do. You need to listen, and here are the steps that you need to take to be better. That's what I think Paul's doing here in Corinth. He stops mid-thought to write what we know as chapter 13. Before he picks his thought back up. He has to sit down and he has to give some straight answers. Some straight diagnoses to the church in Corinth. So this morning, I want us to look at four hard truths to digest. The first hard truth that we need to digest. uh, You don't know everything. We can hear that and we can say, well, yeah, of course, I don't know anything. I don't know everything. But the reality is, oftentimes we act and carry ourselves like we know everything. You can self-diagnose here because uh, you're always right, aren't you? That's a, a symptom of one who thinks they know everything. You don't know everything. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Paul is, is starting here with his argument. He's, he's transitioned from a wedding passage in a weird way. Maybe because that's not a wedding passage. That's a church passage. Context is king. Paul writes in chapter 12 that you're struggling to understand spiritual gifts. You're trying to figure out which one is better. I want this one. Why does he have that one? Why don't I get all the gifts that I want? And Paul stops and he says, stop worrying about the gifts. There's something more important that you're missing. Love one another. Quit acting like children and love one another. And then in chapter 14, he picks it back up. Now that you're stopping acting like children, love one another, and earnestly desire spiritual gifts in love. Otherwise, stop. Paul's pretty hard there. He talks about uh, love never ending, but prophecies will pass away, tongues will pass away, knowledge, gone, passes away. All of it fades. In verse 9 he says, we know in part... 
Even if you have all the knowledge, the most knowledge, it's only a portion. Even if you have all the prophetic power, it's only a portion. You only know in part. You only prophesy in part. You don't know everything. It's a hard pill for us to swallow sometimes. Especially when we have studied. Especially when we think we know. When we think we've learned. It's hard to learn more, isn't it? The reality is love must guide us in our interactions with each other. Every time we encounter each other, love must guide us. It must guide us in how we interact with one another. And it must guide us in how we conduct our church gatherings. Because we only know and prophesy in part. So, you need to come to this place... To learn from God's Word. You don't need to come to this place to have your conclusions affirmed. I need you to hear that. You're not coming here to have your theological convictions confirmed. You're coming here to hear from the Word of God to learn from the Word of God. And if that confirms your convictions, fine. That's good. It's healthy. But our posture should be, what is the Word going to teach me today? And I fear that too many walk in with the subconscious posture, I already know everything. What can I be taught? I think that because so many times we walk out of here, Completely unfazed and unchanged by encountering the eternal, holy, living God through His breathed out Word. And we're we're not moved. Because we come with a posture that says, look, I already got it all figured out. I just need you to give me the check mark on my theology. Say something reformed so I can say amen and let me walk out the door. Paul says, you need to understand the things that you place all the emphasis on. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge, that's what everything, everything was focused there. Your attention, your focus is in the wrong place. All that stuff is going to pass away. Why? Because they're intended as aids for the church in its reception and proclamation of the gospel. So here, Paul is, is trying to show us Trying to show the Corinthian church, you need to approach the throne of grace with boldness and humility. And no, I said we approach the throne of grace boldly because of Christ. But we understand that we are broken, sinful people. So we must come with humility that we still need to learn. These things that Paul mentions, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, they're a means and not the end. And we can't confuse the two. When we do, that's when we get all the divisions, all the factions. That's where Corinth was. Everyone thought they knew what was best. We've never had that problem before. Right? 
Everyone's got opinions. Everyone knows what's best. We all approach it like ours is the absolute answer. It's going to be hard for some of you to hear, but you need to hear this again. You don't know everything. Okay? There's a lot you need to learn. You see why this has been a hard week, right? You don't know everything. So quit acting like it. Be teachable. Don't be the person that seeks counsel just so you can reject that counsel if it disagrees with the conclusion you've already reached. Listen, I've been in pastoral ministry for nearly 20 years and I can tell you from experience, it is absolutely exhausting to have spent countless hours not only studying a particular text or subject, but the entirety of Scripture so that you've got a framework for how to understand that text or subject only to have someone come to you and say, listen, I read an article. I spent a lot of time on this. I read two articles on it, and I think you're wrong. That's an unteachable spirit. It's an unteachable attitude. Or to have someone come to you and ask your counsel, man, I'm really struggling with this. Can you help me with this issue? And then you spend time laboring over the text of Scripture so that you can give a biblically central answer to them. And you give that to them and they say, yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't know that I want to do that. I don't think that's right. You don't know everything. Quit acting like it. Take counsel. Have enough humility to learn something. Especially from your elders. I'll almost guarantee that these three men have put more thought into your question than you have. Because you've come across this question over the last week, month, or year. They've wrestled with this issue and more for the last several years. And I've known these men long enough to know that they're open to correction. They're open to discussion. They're open to the concept, to the idea that they may be wrong. But guys, love them enough to at least hear them and listen to them and consider deeply what they've said. Instead of just hearing it, let it go right out the other side of your brain and then regurgitate what you've already concluded. Stop doing that. Extend that same love to your brothers and sisters in the body as well. Who knows? You might just learn something. You're either going to be mad at yourself or mad at me. We're off to a rocking start. You don't know everything. That's the first hard truth to digest. The second hard truth to digest. It's time to grow up and quit acting like a child. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For years I read that and I thought, oh man, how wonderful. You know, we're just going to grow and mature in the faith. What a, what a wonderful, encouraging word that Paul gives. I would encourage you, just read chapters 12, 13, and 14 in succession. And when you get to verse 11, I want you to see if you can honestly read that section together and come to the conclusion, Paul's just trying to encourage them and love them along. No, Paul is bringing out his sledgehammer. Y'all quit acting like babies, is what he says. To the Corinthian church. When I was a, a napios, a little child, not a child, like when we hear child, when I was a child, we think, oh, like a, a nine or a ten year old, maybe, that, maybe the, that age. No, that's referencing like a very young child, three, four, maybe five. Throughout the whole of Scripture, that's how that word is translated as little child. When I was a little child, I spoke like a little child, I thought like a little child, I reasoned like a little child. Quit acting like little children. Maybe it's helpful for us to think through little children. We've got a few of those around, don't we? Little children are silly, they have frivolous pursuits. They're unserious. See, when a a child spends the afternoon playing in a make-believe world, we'll excuse it because, after all, they're only a child, right? We might even commend them. Oh, look how sweet that is. He created this all little world that he's playing in. How wonderful, how marvelous, how imaginative. When they grow up and spend their evenings playing in a make-believe world, that's not good. We should look at that with reproach. We've we've had a hard couple years. We've lived through a pandemic in our lifetime, haven't we? And not the made-up one from China that was a guise to usher in and accelerate the 2030 agenda. No, No, we have lived through a pandemic in our culture of suspended childhood. We're surrounded by 30 and 40 year old boys and girls. The consequence of that is when parents live in suspended childhood, it's impossible for them to rigorously discipline their children. Because if they discipline their children, they're going to expose their own blatant hypocrisy. You need to grow up and be more mature. Hold on, I gotta go spend eight hours playing Call of Duty. And I can speak to this from experience. I was a very large boy for a very long time. Much longer than I should have been. When we were first married, had a child, a human life to take care of. My, one of my greatest priorities was to be able to get everything I could done so that I could play a video game for as many hours as my wife would let me. That's a grown boy, not a man. And we have a culture that is plagued with suspended childhood. 
All we are, we're, we're driven by play. And you may not want to play a video game, that may be the last thing, but you, you have play. All we, we're driven by play. I want to sit, I want to just stare at a screen. It can be a television screen, it can be a phone screen. I want to stare at it for hours. You're just a grown boy or girl living in a make-believe world, playing make-believe. Children are silly. Children are selfish. They're concerned with themselves. They interpret everything that happens to them and everything that happens in the world through the lens of themselves. And they're always right. They're incapable of seeing themselves as wrong. There's always a justification. I got some of those. I got two kids that will get in a fight. One will hit the other in the face. And they will tell you why it was someone else's fault. They're always right. There's always. But, 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 but. Here's why it's okay for me to do this. We don't have that problem, do we? This is a sin. You need to grow out of it. No, 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 no. You don't understand. This is why, this is why I do this. This is why it's okay. This is, this, is, this is my circumstance. This is my history. And this is why. I, this is just my struggle. This is my thorn in the flesh. Nope. We don't get to do that. We don't get to say that. Everything revolves around a child. Why don't they like me? Why, don't, why didn't they cater the service to me? Why, didn't they, why, why doesn't the pastor come see me more often? Why don't they call and check on me? No one checks on me. No one loves me. No one, no one reaches out to me. Meanwhile, the last time you called and reached out to someone was before the iPhone came out. I can't figure out why no one will reach out to me. Because you're isolated. Grow up and stop seeing the world through the lens of yourself and realize there are other people. There are other people in this world. That's a conversation I have on the daily with my seven-year-old. There are other people. Think of other people. There are other people going on. Not everything revolves around you. Children are silly. They are selfish. They lack self-control. They're driven by their emotions. They're sad, so you need to be sad. They're angry, so I need to scream out loud. They're driven by their emotions. They're driven by their appetites, by their desires. There is no self-control in a child. We recognize that, right? And it's normal in a child. When Marley cries out because she needs food... She doesn't understand English language yet. She's a little delayed. She cries out. And we don't say, well, look at that. How immature is that? That's a child. I cannot believe she's crying. Why doesn't she learn to ask with proper English and diction for some food? We don't do that. When a grown-up acts that way. And there are plenty that do. We know that something's wrong. There's no self-control. A child who lacks self-control is not a disgrace to his parents at all. Because children lack self-control. 
A child who lacks self-control but is not disciplined out of that lack of self-control, that, that's the cause for, for reproach. There's no age when a, a child stops becoming a child and stops doing certain activities. Every child is different. The gauge is not does the child lack self-control. The gauge is does the parent do anything about it. You need to stop that. You need to stop that. Hey, stop that. Stop that. Stop that. That's not doing something. Discipline. Discipline. Correction. And the reason why we don't discipline and correct our children is because we fail to discipline and correct ourselves. Children are silly, they're selfish, they lack self-control, they lack strength, they lack physical strength, mental strength, moral strength. Yeah, but through, through years of disciplined growth, the child will grow physically, mentally, and morally strong. And we know something's gone awry if he's come to be full-grown and is still as physically, mentally, and morally weak as a child. And this becomes even more perilous for a soul because now his weakness has taken root over a lifetime of practice and he's now ruled by his passions. And passions that have long been masters are not easily conquered to become servants. And some of y'all are walking around with passions that have been masters for far too long. And you keep saying you're going to slay them, you're going to conquer them, you're going to make them subservient to you. And you try, and it's not easy, it's hard, and you struggle and you fail, so you quit. Because passions that have long been masters are not easily conquered. They don't want to be servants, they'd rather be masters. Childishness is beautiful in its time. There's, there's few things more precious than seeing a little child act like a little child. Playful and innocent and, and, and wonderful. It's beautiful. But it's only beautiful in its time. And we have a lot of times in our culture and in our churches where parents can't discipline their kids because they're kids themselves. We have a hard time understanding spiritual maturity because we have a distorted view of temporal maturity. We don't know what it means to mature spiritually because we've neglected the pursuit of physical and temporal maturity. Many in the church are content with a childish Christianity because they've never grown up physically. Because they've never done the hard work of maturing and growing physically they don't understand the difficulty and the trials and the straining that is necessary to grow up and mature spiritually. We've got people that are 10, 15, 20 years into their Christian faith. And man, they're proud that they can make it to church once a week most of the time. 
<laughs> I made it to church Sunday morning three times this month. That's a good month. That's the equivalent of a 20-year-old coming up to you and proudly singing their ABCs and asking you to next time sing with them. We act like we've accomplished something. I was at church. I'm at church every week. Well, most of the weeks, but only on Sunday morning because, you know, reasons. You're going to be mad at me or mad at yourself. Such thinking is great for a new Christian. You're new in the faith. You've never been involved in a church culture before. Hey, it is a victory. Man, it is a victory to get you here and get you under the word. And you, you are a little sporadic at first. We understand we're, we're trying to teach you. We're trying to grow you. But it's a cause for reproach for one who should be mature. That your primary aim in your spiritual walk is just to get here. It's a problem. It's time for some of you to grow up and stop acting like a child. I said some of you. How do you know if it's you? How do you know if you need to grow up in some areas and stop acting like a child? Let me help you out. If you've listened to this point and you've not began to start um, identifying areas where, you know what, there's some immaturity there on my part. I need to grow up there. If you've not started already to see, you know what, there's some problems. You know, this makes me uncomfortable, but there's some problems in my life where I need to address. If you've not already started thinking of those areas, those weaknesses in your life, then I'm talking to you. It's time to grow up and quit acting like a child. If by this point you're not thinking of anything, any area of growth for yourself, then you are the first person who thinks they know everything. You've come here not to be taught, not to be instructed in the word of the Lord, but instead to be affirmed. To, told, to be told that you're great and you're doing everything right. I'm sorry, you are in the wrong place for that. Remember, children are incapable of seeing themselves as wrong. There's always a justification. Everything has a reason and an excuse. Brothers, sisters, listen to me. Out of love for you, listen to me. Stop justifying your failure. And repent. And stop taking offense at the notion that you might have something to repent of. We all do. I do. So Paul says, grow up. Stop acting like children. He says, when I became a man, 
I gave up childish ways. Remember the child makes excuses for their failure while the adult admits their error, accepts responsibility, and changes their actions. What we call that in biblical terminology is repentance. It's time to give up childish things. It's time to grow up. Temporally, it's time to stop playing make-believe and get to work. Get to work in the kingdom. Get to work in your life. Spiritually, that looks like forgiveness, reconciliation. Well, we got people that will, will walk around for months and years holding a grudge, a meaningless, useless grudge. Someone's not paying enough attention to me. All right. Paul would say, grow up and quit acting like a child. You're being a baby. That's the sledgehammer. Sorry. Grow up. Quit acting like a child. Love that person that you think has snubbed you. That's not paying enough attention to you. Love them enough to forgive them for their perceived slights. And then love them enough to seek their forgiveness for you holding them to an undefined, impossible standard. And the reality is, I think everyone in this body has a problem there. Because we do that constantly. We have undefined expectations for people that we've never told them, hey, listen, this is what I expect from you. This is what I want from you. And then when they don't meet those expectations, boy, we get all hot and bothered and upset. And then we carry a bitter grudge in our hearts because we're children. And we need to grow up. Someone someone else getting the opportunities in the body that maybe you think you deserve? Why don't I get to do that? I'd like to, I'd like to lead on uh, Wednesday nights. I'd like to uh, uh, do the exhortation. I love them enough to be happy for them. Stop begrudging them. This is at the heart of why Paul interrupts his instruction on spiritual gifts. The church couldn't hear difficult things because they had failed to start from a place of godly love. Why do we have factions? Why do we have divisions? Because we don't love each other enough. Why do we hold grudges? Why do we harbor bitterness? Because we don't love each other enough. You want to get down to the root of it? Why do we not love each other enough? Because we don't love God enough. Our love for our neighbor flows from our love for God. How do you grow up? How do you be a man? How do you put away childish things according to Paul? Love your brother and sister. Even when it's hard. Especially when it's hard. What kind of love is it that only loves when it's easy and convenient? That's not love. 
when it seems like there will be and can be nothing in it for you, love your brother and your sister. When you've got to swallow your pride, love them. When it's going to humiliate you, love them. Love them enough to say hard things. I think we're probably pretty comfortable there. Where we may be uncomfortable is love them enough to hold your tongue. Sometimes your opinion needs to just stay your opinion. Love them enough to love them as yourself. Because you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think it's important that we take, take notice here at the verb tenses that are taking place. In verse 8, prophecies will pass away, tongues will cease, knowledge, it will pass away. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Katergeo is in the passive tense in all of those cases. God is going to cause all of those things to pass away, to abolish them, to, to make them pass on. But when Paul comes to verse 11, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That's no longer in the passive, but in the active. I set aside. This is the task of the believer. It's not something that's just done for you on your behalf. This is part of our cooperation and sanctification. You must set aside childish things. And it's hard to set aside childish things because we have an emotional attachment to childish things. Do we not? How hard is it for a child to give up their favorite toy? To lay aside that which they cherished in their younger days? How much more so when you've held on to it for a lifetime and identified it as being part of who you are? No, you must set it aside. Fight, struggle, strive to set aside childish things. So, first two hard truths to digest. You don't know everything. Grow up and quit acting like a child. The third hard truth that we have to digest, if you're not choking by now, Quit acting like this life is everything. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Oh, it's the plight of man to consider the vapor that is this life as if it were an ever-ending stream, is it not? We act like we are going to live forever. Even now, as I talk about the reality that we will not live forever, that every one of us will die, you're subconsciously thinking, yeah, everyone in here is going to die, but probably not me. It's the way our mind works. When you're young, you think, I'm invincible. Nothing can hurt me. When you're old, you realize things can hurt me, but I'm invincible. We live like we're going to be here forever. We don't 
know everything, and Paul doubles down on that. He says, we see in a mirror dimly. Part of our lack of knowledge is because we we think that this is it. We're just going to keep on doing this forever. And we're not. We get a moment here. And we're acting like this is where we're going to spend all of eternity. And we're laying up treasures here. And we should be laying up treasures there. Now we see in a mirror dimly. Enigmati. Enigma. That's where we get the word, the word enigma. We see through a glass dimly. The, 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 the picture here is you're looking into a mirror. And we're, we're a little spoiled here because we look in a mirror and we see a clear picture of ourselves. Do we not? That's a great thing for some of us. For other of us, that's unfortunate. See through a glass dimly. What you had in the first century was a piece of metal that had been polished exceedingly well. And you could see yourself. But I want you to think about the, the, the best reflection you've ever seen in a piece of metal of yourself. And that's not great. And Paul doesn't even say that we see through a glass... He says we see through a glass dimly. It's not even a good mirror. This is a slight at Corinth. Because Corinth was known for their excellent mirrors. You didn't know you'd be known for mirrors, did you? Corinth was known for their excellent mirrors. And Paul makes a strike at the heart of who they are. And this is not the first time this happens in the New Testament. Happens quite often, honestly. Maybe the most striking uh, example of this is in the letters to Laodicea and Sardis in the book of Revelation. You know, Laodicea had tepid water and they had to pump in hot water and cool water from Hierapolis and Colossae. So they had to, uh, they had to have that. Their, their own water was lukewarm and useless, and when you drank it, you spat it out of your mouth. And so Jesus uses that picture of who they are. They had uh, a worldwide reputation for uh, a salve for your eyes that would heal just about any problem you had with your eyes, and he calls them blind. They can't see. Hits at the heart of who they are. Sardis had a reputation twice in their history. They lived, the Sardis was situated at the top of a pinnacle. It was an impenetrable fortress. No one could uh, uh, attack it. No one could conquer it as long as they were paying attention. On twice in their, in their history, the guards fell asleep and their helmet fell down the staircase that allowed them to uh, ascend and descend the cliffside. And enemies went in the secret passage and conquered them twice. And Jesus says, Sardis, wake up. Paul does it in the Philippians 2. Philippi was a Roman city-state, which was a, a place of high honor. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Don't, don't be bragging about Roman citizenship. Brag about heavenly citizenship. So this is not uncommon. Paul takes something that is precious to the Corinthians and he uses it to hit them at the heart. We see through a glass dimly. It's not even a good mirror. We see dimly, but we do see something. And we can't do away with that. We've seen God. We've seen God dimly through the lens of His creation and His Word. I want you to think of this. Think of everything that you do know about God. His holiness, His mercy, His goodness. And yet, how firm that is, and when you try to grab it, it evaporates. 
Because the more you press in, the more you try to know, the more you learn, the harder it is to grasp our great God. We see Him dimly. In many ways, our knowledge of God is is like a dense fog. We see it, we comprehend it, but when we try to get it, it just dissipates. And that's not always going to be the case, though. One day, we will see God face to face. This life will end. That day that we see God face to face will be a glorious extension of His gracious revelation through the ages. We should think about all the times that God has insisted that we understand that we can see Him, that we will see Him. In Numbers, we see that uh, uh, this idea of, of speaking face to face. Moses writes, with, with him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And, the, and, the, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The Lord says, I speak with him face to face. We're friends. We're close. That's a, that's a shadow. Everyone looked at that. That's wonderful. That's marvelous. It's terrifying. But God, face to face, happens again in Exodus and Deuteronomy, that God reveals himself face to face. And we see this pattern even with the disciples. That God reveals himself and shows his nearness to those he loves. Jesus would speak in parables to the crowds and then speak straight and plain to the disciples. He made himself known to them. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What we know now is, is but a shadow of the fullness to come. And that then there, that then, that then I shall know fully, is our glorification. Guys, we're going to die. You will die. It could be one year, two years, three years. Eight years is a realistic timeline. It, it could go any time. You're going to die. My favorite statistic in the world. Ten out of ten people die. Every one of us. When you're a child, you think you live forever. Amen? When you grow up, you mature, you start realizing, I got only so many days left. When you got a little baby in your house, you think you're going to have that baby in your house forever. When they get to be teenagers, you start saying, How many Christmases you got left with them? You count them. That comes with maturity, knowing that this life is not the end. Whether it's soon or many years from now, you cannot escape the fact that you will die and you will stand before God face to face. So act like it. Quit acting like you're going to continue breathing in the oxygen of this age forever and live with the certain knowledge that you will die and you will stand before God. We like to use that as an evangelistic tactic that you're going to stand before a holy God So are you. And you've been given talents. And many of you are burying them. Instead of investing them and making them grow. The reality is we will see God. And that's wonderful, marvelous news. But can I I share something terrifying? He will see you. He will be revealed to you. 
as you are laid bare before Him. Every idle thought, every idle action, every evening you wasted, every weekend you frittered away, and you will give an account. What did you do? Are you ready for that? Paul has hard words because it's a hard reality. We all look forward to well done, good and faithful servant. Is it well done? The task that you've been given, is it well done? Have you been good and faithful with the ministry that he's apportioned to you? We can neglect pursuing maturity through biblical love for one another so long as we can continue to deceive ourselves about our length of days. I've got time. I can be hard now. I can be prickly now. I got time. You don't have time. We don't have time. The moment we begin to take our brevity of life seriously, as Scripture insists that we do, there's a litany of passages that remind us we're here for a moment. The moment we begin to take our brevity of life seriously, the more earnestly we will seek to love one another. This is the love passage, right? It's written to a church that needs to love each other more. So you don't know everything. You need to grow up and quit acting like a child. You need to quit acting like this life is everything. And our final hard truth to digest. Pay attention. Because you probably misunderstood. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Here's why we chop off verses 8 through 12. And we read all the stuff about love and then we skip straight to 13 because this is just pretty and it's flowery. Listen, Paul's Paul's not writing an invitation to some hippy-dippy love fest where we sit around in a circle and sing kumbaya with one another. Paul is not giving an invitation at all. He is giving a command. Love one another. You want to fight about gifts? There's a better way. It's loving one another. And this is what love looks like. It's what biblical love looks like. It's hard. It's for men. It's for women. It's not for children. It's a command and it's not optional. Stop acting like babies and love one another. Yes, we have to do that. But then we must pursue 
We must pursue spiritual gifts. But we have to do it out of love and as an act of love. Paul doesn't drop spiritual gifts. That's a hard conversation that he's having. And he picks it right back up. Here's what you need to do to understand this. You need to grow up and love each other. And now that you understand you need to grow up and love each other, let me tell you what that looks like. So he says, pursue love. This is chapter 14, verse 1. This is where chapter breaks are terrible. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The whole point of this little excursion in chapter 13 is so that you can properly understand what it looks like to have gifts in the body. And to have differing gifts and have differing positions and differing levels of sanctification. Love one another. And then pursue what God has commanded you to pursue. What God has given you. Pursue it. Strive after it. Fight for it. And love one another enough to help each other along. To encourage one another. To forgive one another. Let's stop being children. Let's stop being children physically. Let's stop being children spiritually. The two go hand in hand. And let's pursue love. Biblical love. First for God, then for each other. And let's watch and see what happens. I think we'll be pleased with the results. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this time together today. Thank You for hard truths, hard texts. I pray that that Your Spirit has plowed the grounds of our hearts so that we might receive these hard truths today. Let us meditate on them. Let us consider how we might grow in our faith. We might grow in our maturity to better and more fully and completely glorify you.